1: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, Price and Coverage Match Limited by State Law.
2: Happy Wednesday, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us and welcome to the show. I must say, I'm doing the show from a standing desk. This is breaking
3: news. Who cares, Shira? Everyone has standing desk.
2: Well, I did not have one until now, and I must say. I'm enjoying it, yet my lower back is kind of hurting, and I feel like I need to take a nap.
3: So you wanted to update us that you are growing older and also (laughs) that you uh, tried to invest in yourself with a stand-up desk? I don't know. I don't really understand, but okay. Listen,
2: we're sitting on Zoom and recording the show for hours. I don't think it's healthy, but something's got to give because I don't know if it's good to stand like this all day long, like... The other extreme might not be good for you either. Why stand
3: when you could have just bought yourself a more comfortable chair?
2: Listen, the standing desk desk thing is the trend and it's supposed to help you and really be good for you. But what I'm going to be getting is one of those things you stand on. So I'm going to have something like on the floor that I stand on that's supposed to help you stand better.
3: I mean, I'm so happy you have all this extra money just to be spending. It's really great. I
2: don't, I don't though. That's the funny part. Anyway, (laughs) I just thought I'd share that because I'm just like fascinated by people's uh, different ways of, I don't know, working from home. Everyone has a way that works for them. Well, we've got a lot coming up on the show. We've got some amazing guests today. We've got the first daytime Emmy nominated trans actor, Scott Turner Schofield joining us. We've got Catherine O'Hara Stylist and also the author of a book, The Queer Advantage, Andrew Galwick's joining us. And we've got one of the top tech Writers out there, journalists, Peter Kafka joining us from CodeInVox.com. So it's a big show. It's a big day. But let's get into some what's trending this hour because oof, this country, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. Democratic Representative Katie Porter today got into a heated conversation with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin during a House Financial Services Committee hearing with Porter claiming that Mnuchin was play acting to be a lawyer. So she was basically grilling him over his support to move $455 billion in COVID-19 relief from the Federal Reserve back into the Treasury's general fund, making it harder for his successor to access the emergency funding. So she noted that under the Cares Act, any remaining funds may be moved to the Treasury only on or after January 1st, 2026. Questionable, right? Hmm. Ridiculous that you're play acting to be a lawyer when you well, have
4: I actually, degree, I have plenty of lawyers at the Department of Treasury who advise me. So uh, I'm more than Mr. happy Mnuchin,
5: to. Mnuchin, are you, in fact, a lawyer?
4: Not have a legal degree. I have lawyers that report to me.
5: Okay. So, Secretary Mnuchin, you're trying to tell Chairman Powell to send over a remaining fund right now. And you're claiming falsely, in my opinion, that that is what the law says gotten into a disagreement with someone who's actually
4: a lawyer are, are you a lawyer you're not
2: listening to congress which actually wrote the law about what it <laughs> says the moment where he questions her for being a lawyer and it's like uh yeah kitty porter went to harvard law school
3: yeah word. i mean it's she always is gather, gathering folks and getting people together and these men just show how fragile they are when a woman of power is literally pushing for the truth I mean, and
2: by the way, Mnuchin has been criticized for his handling of the stimulus funding from Congress. He's the worst. Yeah. Listen to this. And I just had to put this out there because this is ridiculous. A federal judge in June ordered the secretary to release the full 679 million in funding set aside for Native American tribes. He had previously committed to holding it back while waiting on a decision in another case that would determine whether tribal businesses are eligible for the funding. And so uh, basically this U.S. district judge says you've now taken more than twice as much time as Congress directed to distribute all cares act funds. And this was for native American tribes. So that's all I'm going to say now, before we end, I just got to uh, play this clip of uh, president Trump delivering his most important speech yet. Literally. That's what he said. This
1: election was rigged. Everybody knows it. I don't mind if I lose an election, but I want to lose an election fair And square. What I don't want to do is have it stolen from the American people. That's what we're fighting for. And we have no choice to be doing that. We already have the proof. We already have the evidence. And it's very clear. Many people in the media and even judges so far have refused to accept it. They know it's true. They know it's there. They know who won the election, but they refuse to say, you're right. Our country needs somebody to say you're right.
2: So really, that is all from what's trending this hour, but that, no words. No words about that speech today. And uh, what's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All
3: right, let's dive into the T-Report, those pop culture stories that are trending right now. Now, a movie shoots uh, for the remake of She's All That literally um, almost temporarily closed a Los Angeles coronavirus testing site. So more than 500 people had appointments to be tested Tuesday at Union Station, according to Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. Well, the area was also the site of a movie shoot scheduled to happen on the same day. Now, this remake is literally the one that all the TikTok stars are a part of. So it's like, how is the TikTok movie literally shutting down coronavirus sites? Well... Of course. Yeah. You know, people with appointments uh, to get tested at the site were notified by the testing center operator, uh, Curative, on Monday that the location would be closed due to an event as it was first reported by deadline. Now, news of the testing site's closure quickly got a lot of backlash online with many commenting that the location is one of the city's most accessible testing sites. Um, Not long after the backlash, of course, Eric Garcetti issued a statement on Twitter announcing that the Union Station testing site would reopen. However, he did not mention the film shoot. You know, that's one thing that I do not like about mm-hmm. um, our current people um, in government here Eric Garcetti, our Governor Gavin Newsom. It seems like they don't like just tell you the straight truth, they always are just doing the politician mm-hmm. thing. Um, And it it pisses a lot of people off. And of course, Eric Garcetti always gets dragged because of his handling of the homeless population here and everything else that's going on. So, um, yeah, this was interesting. Why would this even happen? I can't believe it.
2: Uh, They obviously aren't doing things properly. They haven't figured it out. And everything gets uprooted for um, movies, it seems here, even people's health.
3: (laughs) Well, that's your T-Report. I got more coming up next hour.
2: All right, coming up, transactor Scott Turner Schofield joins us to talk about the power of Elliot Page's recent announcement. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Oscar nominated actor Elliot Page came out as trans yesterday with a powerful announcement on his Instagram. And now I'm so excited to have Emmy nominated actor Scott Turner Schofield joining us right now, who made TV history as the first openly transgender actor in daytime TV with a recurring role on CBS's The Bold and the Beautiful. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it.
5: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you.
2: And congrats on your daytime Emmy nom this year, which was so huge and historic, by the way.
5: Thank you. It, you know, I only think it's historic because it's 2020 mm-hmm. already. Uh, you know, anytime you get a first now, like, I, and I'm just so surprised because especially with Elliot Page now, right, what, to be the first actor to get an any acting Emmy w- or nomination, right, was was... Just more of a surprise. Like, how are we not further along in this? But
3: (laughs) Yeah, but do you know how many Black people must love you? I grew up on Boat and the Beautiful. Like, seriously, my mom still watched, my grandmother still watched it. So, like, obsessed. It's amazing how you're really, you know, showing people in their homes, right? You're in their living rooms with them. That's great
5: it's it's been amazing to take part in and you know the storyline really went in this amazing direction because my Avon's family my Avon is black and her family is black so ha- you know a black family like negotiating a transgender person in their family. Yeah. It's just so amazing to be on the sidelines of and, and take little parts in. It was fantastic.
2: And what was your reaction when you saw Elliot Page's announcement? I was just
5: so happy, honestly. Um, I'm happy whenever anyone comes out as mm. trans. It's so hard to do. It means that they're doing so much work. It means that they're in this wonderful moment of self acceptance, and we just hope that they get the love and good reception, welcome that they deserve. Yeah. And it seemed like it was it was a nice day to be trans on Twitter yesterday, yeah. uh, <laughs> which never happens. So, um, so yeah, it was it was just great, and it's wonderful for trans men because trans men and and non binary masculine folks, we are not really visible yet. Mm -hmm. You know, trans women, and look, we did it right. We put our ladies first. That's the right thing to do, not mad. And, you know, trans men and transmasculine folks are just, we're still invisible. And that invisibility pays a real price among us. It's very hard to be who you are and not have anyone that you can point to to say, there's somebody who's doing a great job, who's who's successful in life and, and living their dream, and I can too. To have someone that, you know, that big on
3: such map. a platform, right. and honestly, I wanted to know your perspective because obviously, when the coming out happened of Elliot Page, like turfs went insane. You know what? How does that continued unfortunate, you know, and their continued exclusionary behavior impact, especially someone who's newly coming out and accepting themselves, and they're seeing that on the internet?
5: So here's my resolution. I started this on at the 2020 trans day of remembrance. And I decided that, you know, the phrase silence equals death. Mm -hmm. Mm. I'm not going to talk about TERFs anymore. I'm not going to give them a platform. So that's what I have to say. I love that. What, one thing that, you know, one thing that I do want to talk about with Elliot's coming out was Elliot was a lesbian icon for a minute. And there were a lot of lesbians who aren't necessarily TERFs who, um, we're like, oh, man, we lost one or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that was the conversation, and yeah. Look, I also went through a phase where I thought I was a lesbian. I was assigned female at birth when I was born. It was like, it's a girl, right? That quickly became apparent was not the case, <laughs> right? Uh, except that nobody had the words. Nobody could, There, I didn't have anybody to point to in popular culture to say, no, I'm like that person, mm-hmm. right? And so I thought, okay, one plus one, right? I'm assigned female at birth and And I'm primarily attracted to other females. That must mean I'm a lesbian. Yeah. Right. And then I was like, but do all lesbians want to be men? Mm. And then, but here's the thing, homophobia, right? Homophobia says lesbians just want to be men. Mm -hmm. Gay men just want to be men. That's
3: also misogyny too. It's the patriarchy.
5: (laughs) There you go. Right. There you go. Okay. Right. Exactly. Right. So that message gets in. That's internalized homophobia, Mm -hmm. internalized misogyny, internalizing the patriarchy, internalizing all of that. And I'm like, no, lesbians who want to be men need to look at their gender identity because you might be trans or Mm non-binary, right? Mm -hmm. They're separate things. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad that that's part of my story right? It's rich detail in my story. And it's like, yeah, sometimes becoming a white man, y'all, sometimes I'm like, y'all, I went the wrong way. But like, I couldn't help it. You know, (laughs) I had to do this.
2: Oh Oh, my God, you're amazing. I mean, nominated actor Scott Turner Schofield joins us right now. Uh, You've been just doing such incredible work. You consulted also for Euphoria, helped guide and create their trans character. How groundbreaking was that process? And what can Hollywood learn from it?
5: You know, so the process of working on the different different shows that I've been able to work on, right? I go in, I work with the writers on making sure that we're telling the story without tropes. And if you watch amazing documentary on Netflix right now called Disclosure, yes. Trans Lives on yeah. Screen. And so you watch that and you see like everything, if you don't actually know a trans person, everything that you know about trans people from Hollywood is wrong, mm-hmm. right? And and people didn't even know that. So I go in and I work, make sure that the scripts are good. Then I go on set, I work with the union, make sure that every all the crew members are like sensitive and can be helpful so that everybody can just do their job, right? right? Right. Work with the director, make sure that the way that we're looking at the trans bodies on screens isn't also stereotypical, right? Or mean or any of those things, right? And what's wonderful about it is it means that there are very powerful people in Hollywood who are listening, Mm -hmm. right? Who finally, instead of just deciding, oh, this is what it must mean to be trans, let me make it all up, only including cis people, right? Right. They're bringing us on. They're putting our real bodies on screen, which is just accuracy, can I say, Mm -hmm. right? They are, you know, they are listening to us and that is a marker of the social change that is happening. So like, there is work to do. We have to take care of people. We have to change society. And at the same time, more people care. More people are actually doing the work from positions of power I am watching that. I am a part of it. And so just remember that, like use that as fuel.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, you are incredible, inspiring and powerful. Like, and so it was. It, it, it was so great having you on and meeting you. And we hope that you can come back.
5: I would love to. Thank you so much. I'm just, thank you for for signal boosting this. We need more trans men talking about this.
2: Yes, please. Definitely. That was Scott Turner Schofield, Emmy nominated actor. You can watch him in the feature film, The Conductor out now. And coming up, Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps. For more, go to (laughs) 127steps.com. Now coming up on the show, restaurants are defying indoor dining closures. Do they have a right to do that? Is that the right move? We'll be back with more in two minutes.
0: Let's go there with Shira
2: and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A handful of restaurants in Michigan are defying state orders to stop indoor dining services. The orders went into effect on Wednesday, November 18th for a period of three weeks to help slow down the increase of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations across the state, which makes sense, but yet an entire industry is about to implode. And joining us right now is Brenna Houck, Lead Editor at Eater Detroit and a reporter with Eater.com. Thanks for being here. I am happy to be here. So from your reporting, does the restaurant industry feel like they're being unfairly targeted right now?
6: Um, It's really a mixed bag. I think that there is a small proportion of individuals around the state that honestly feel like they're being unfairly targeted. I think more people are frustrated that they've had to adapt so much and that they're not getting as much communication from the state as they would like. And most of those people do understand that they want to be safe. They want to operate safely, but they're just concerned about how to, you know, ensure that their employees are being taken care of if they get laid off, or right. um, making sure that they're able to pay their rent and continue to, you know, earn a living. So those are those are big concerns. Um, but there is a small proportion of places that are defying the orders right now.
3: Yeah, and you wrote, while proportionally restaurants and bars account for only 5.5% of all reported outbreaks in the state during the week of November 12th, are we actually seeing those cases rise uh, that are specifically associated with the restaurants and bars when it comes to these outbreaks?
6: Uh, Absolutely. Um, I've been tracking the data uh, released by the state. It's not perfect data, it's not a perfect picture, but um, that data has shown that over the course since August through November, when the indoor dining order went into effect, that cases, you know, increased pretty dramatically, almost double and almost triple what they were in August. So even though proportionally, it's, you know, a small percentage, it has a large impact. You also don't necessarily until up until the week before the indoor dining order went into effect, restaurants weren't expected to collect any data or information about who was coming to the restaurants Mm. and leaving. So they couldn't do contact tracing as effectively. So there's really no way of knowing actually how many people were being infected by visiting bars and restaurants. But what we do know is that the cases were going up, the outbreaks were going up. um, And this was a, direct measure that the state could take to try
2: and slow that. Definitely. Brenna Halk again is with us, lead editor at Eater Detroit and a reporter with Eater.com. Now in Michigan, the restaurant association is suing the state health director over these indoor dining closures. Will that make a difference or it seems like they're defying it anyway? Like what's going to happen? Are these restaurants going to be punished or it's not going to matter right now because they're suing them? Well, actually, um, an
6: update just this afternoon, uh, the judge came back and ruled in favor of the state Michigan Health, Health and Human Services, saying that um, the order was justified. Um, And so indoor dining will remain closed at least through December 8th and possibly longer. I think a lot of people are bracing for this to be a longer extended closure. You know, the response to that, obviously, uh, the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, which filed this lawsuit on behalf of two restaurant owners in the state, they are unhappy that that decision was made um, and that it didn't go in their favor, but they're still planning to fight against it. And we also have some other major restaurateurs in the state like Joe Bacari, who owns um, several large restaurant, restaurants in um, Metro Detroit, circulating letters calling on other people to defy the order if it gets extended past that December 8th date.
2: So. And this happened by the way, in LA too, but it was outdoor dining. Right. And so I personally get the indoor dining closures, but we're in LA in, or in California where it's warmer, you can eat outdoors and they've even. <laughs> Seriously, like, Don't down. take away my
3: outdoor eating.
2: <laughs> but like, this is huge because a lot of people won't survive this. A lot of restaurants are not going to survive this. Uh, what are you seeing happen as a, a result of, all these changes.
6: I mean, I think outdoor dining is, you know, it's important. But in a state like Michigan or in Minnesota, it's or cold something, out it's there. Not going to make as much of a difference. A lot of, but in Los Angeles, the way that I understood it was that there weren't any actual uh, restrictions on spacing or seating in outdoor dining spaces. Yeah, I think um, it has so to. Be that like made the Los Angeles a little bit different. Yeah. And that made it a little bit more challenging to control COVID. But the problem is, is really what we're finding right now and what everybody is writing about right now, because there's really nothing else to talk about, is restaurants, service workers, they need a bailout. They need some sort of supplement or money to help them bridge this gap because they don't have anywhere else to go. There's no extra jobs right now. It's a downturn. And, you know, takeout can't support these sorts of things. at all.
2: Yeah. I think the cities and states need to take accountability for that, definitely. But they have yet to necessarily do that. Brenna how? thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Brenna is a lead editor at Eater Detroit and a reporter with Eater.com. Now coming up, what city is considering a ban on smoking inside apartments? We tell you next.
0: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan,
2: the new Channel Q. San Francisco residents who live in apartment buildings with three or more units will no longer be allowed to smoke tobacco inside their homes. But don't you worry, you can still smoke cannabis (laughs) under this new law passed Tuesday.
3: I mean, honestly, I like this law. I always wonder, really? wondered. Yeah, I'm not into uh, smoking tobacco. That's not my thing. I also hate the smell of it. And I think if somebody is smoking in their apartment or the apartment building or in buildings in general, it is everywhere. The smell is everywhere. It creeps through the walls. It's disgusting. So I think this is a move, especially with how highly populated San Francisco is. I think this was smart.
2: Yeah. I mean, I tend to agree. I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm not into the smell. I do think it just like somehow makes its way into people's, uh, other, like other rooms and spaces. We does that too, by the way. Uh, however, does this infringe on rights? Like, are we going too far? Because, once you ban tobacco, it's like, yeah, I think it does start taking steps to possibly banning cannabis.
3: No, it's not. Here's the thing. I genuinely don't think it's actually infringing on anyone's rights because, um, I believe that the reason why they still allowed cannabis is because it's illegal under state law to smoke cannabis in public places. Now, tobacco smokers could still leave their apartments to step out to the curb or go to, you know, you know, the park or somewhere were outside and they are still permitted to smoke in like outdoor smoking areas and that's according to the supervisor Rafael Mendelman, Amend- uh, who actually wrote the amendment to exempt uh, cannabis and so I just think if you take away all smoking then what's the point of saying that cannabis is legalized because then where can you smoke it if you can't smoke it in, 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 in your own home, in the comfort of your home, home, especially when people use that stuff as anxiety Well that's um, the thing,
2: I, listen we're in a place where cannabis is going to be legalized, but there are some of those people, the naysayers who are going to fight it and figure out ways to ban it, I guess, and say only for medical marijuana. And then of course, everyone's just going to get probably prescriptions for medical marijuana. I'm not supporting that. I'm just saying I've seen it happen. That said, let's talk about cigarettes again. You know, There is something about secondhand smoke and they said that you know, that's the biggest issue because according to the CDC, cigarettes still kill more than 480,000 people per year in the US. But there's more than 41,000 deaths caused by exposure to secondhand smoke. And that's what they're trying to protect people here.
3: Yeah. And I get that. I mean, I think it's just, here's the thing. If people want to smoke their cigarettes, go at it. Do it. I have no problem, you know, because I think that tobacco smoking is like a really big uh, habit and it's really hard to cut it off. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm from the South where people used to dip and they would put tobacco in the back of their lips and it would slice their lip open and they that's how they would, you know, do it. It's like disgusting. But um, I do think, you know, this idea of kind of like a secondhand smoke, it, should, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be allowed i don't i don't like it and you should just respect that policy in my opinion
2: well listen a lot of people are who smoke probably hate this they're like f you this is my space let me do what i want You know, don't tell me what to do in my own home. But guess what's going to happen if you do it? They're saying you're going to get a thousand dollar fine, a thousand dollars a day. And uh, but could not be evicted for any violation, which is interesting. You still got to pay a lot of money, though. Yeah. And the mayor still needs to approve this. But let us know what you think. Is this right? Slide into our DMs. Hit us up on social media at LGT show coming up on the show. A man outed by his boss just won a huge settlement. More details on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, the author of The Queer Advantage, Andrew Gelwix, joins us to navigate how queer identity led some of the world's top leaders to success. It's a a really cool book, and we're so excited to have him on the show today.
3: Yes, we are.
2: He also happens to be Catherine O'Hara's publicist.
3: I'm not publicist, stylist,
2: just saying.
3: <laughs> I know. <laughs> that would be cool, though. I mean, I love Catherine and everything that she does from Home Alone to Shit's Creek. Oh, I love that. I can't wait yeah. to ask him about it. She's an icon. But let's get
2: into some What's Trending this hour. Barack Obama spoke to the host of Snapchat's Good Luck America, Peter Hamby, which I didn't realize this, but they're covering some... Uh, big news on Snapchat right now. And they discussed many things, including defund the police.
6: I guess you can use a snappy slogan like defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. But if you instead say, let's reform the police department so that everybody's being treated fairly you know, divert young people from getting into crime. And if there's a homeless guy, can maybe we send a mental health worker there instead of an armed unit that could end up resulting in a tragedy. Suddenly, a whole bunch of folks who might not otherwise listen to you are listening to you. So the key is deciding, do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree
2: with? So Ryan, what's your take on his response to this?
3: Um, to be honest, i'm getting sick and tired of Obama, <laughs> and i'm I not sure um I'm not sure if Obama is just who he's always been, and I'm just leaning more. Left, um, and thankfully, I am. I'm progressing. i I think I'm leaning more of on a progressive side. But this idea that defund the police is this catchy slogan when it's a policy position, and we all know we de- defund means when it comes to other industries, from arts, from education to anything, people get it. It feels like people aren't understanding it when we're talking about reforming and and not giving these police departments billions of dollars. To continue to kill unarmed black and brown people in this country. And so, this idea of him saying this really shows me that he's still very moderate and these talking points are very right leaning.
2: Oh. I mean, that's a bit extreme to say that Obama is right-leaning, but... That's not uh, extreme. I'm a black person
3: in this country who's (laughs) affected by these things. He is is putting out a narrative, and also um, he's also negating the work that activist organizers are out here who have plainly put it out on Front Street of what this means. I don't like what he said. It's not okay.
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised that he said this, because I do think there are activists out there who, by the way, still say defund the police, but still say that it has confused the message so his response to this is not surprising it hasn't confused
3: and- the message i'm sorry i don't i don't agree with that and there's tons of people who are on the grounds on the fighting for this have clearly put it as plain as clean, clean, like as just as yeah. clear as possible. I just it is I'm, what it is. You know,
2: I, I'm I'm there with you. And uh, this will continue to be discussed. Well, hopefully not, because hopefully it will be reformed and something will be done, including with the Biden administration.
3: And uh, I didn't say on? he was right leaning, by the way. I said those talking oh, okay. points are right. leaning, So, yes, he is kind of going in Got that it. way if his talking points are that way. That's the issue with a moderate Democrat.
2: Got it. Uh, Well, let's move on to news from our sister station, KNX News. Sacramento County Sheriff Scott Jones, who wouldn't enforce the limited curfew, tested positive for COVID-19. And in a statement, the sheriff's office said Jones's symptoms started last Friday and tested uh, positive Tuesday. That's when he tested positive when he developed symptoms late last week after workplace exposure to an employee that later tested positive. And he does have symptoms, including fever, lightheadedness, congestion and a headache. He is in isolation now and his immediate family is in quarantine. Now, a federal judge ruled that it's unconstitutional for transgender people to be required to show proof from a doctor that they're undergoing transition related care in order to get a passport with the correct gender marker on it. U.S. District Court Judge Gloria M. Navarro said the State Department has provided no explanation, let alone any evidence of why it has an important interest in verifying a transgender passport applicant's gender identity, nor a cogent explanation of why the policy requiring a physician certification increases the accuracy of issued passports. So, this is a big deal. And, uh, you know, thank you to this judge for taking a stand on this. Mm-hmm. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in Entertainment News, Ryan?
3: All right, quick story in the T-Report. Remember that Candace Owens thing where she was talking about Uh, bring back manly men uh, because of Harry Styles Vogue cover where where he was seen wearing a dress and it caused all this conversation and people were just being the worst. Well, Harry Styles Mm -hmm. uh, threw some subtle shade at Candace Owens today in response to that criticism of his Vogue cover where he basically uh, wore a Gucci ball gown. So now here's the thing. He posts a photo on Instagram where he's wearing a powder blue suit, ruffled shirt while eating a banana saying bring back manly men (laughs) so he's like you know it's a cute little comeback but she responded of course because she loves the attention saying when people try to tell me i don't have influence and then at harry styles dedicates an entire post to my tweet i inspire global conversation hashtag bring back manly men shots fired i can't stand Mm. her she's the worst
2: fascinating yeah i mean doesn't she have other stuff to do
3: i don't know probably not she thrives off of this attention so i think this is what gets her going but that's your t report love it okay coming up on the show will there be a
2: monument to the COVID 19 pandemic we discuss that coming up next Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new channel Q. Diseases like the bubonic plague, cholera, the 1918 influenza pandemic, or Spanish flu, AIDS, and even SARS have monuments. So will there be one for COVID? Well, Dr. Aaron Thompson is joining us right now, professor at the City University of New York. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what's the significance of monuments for things like this, and how have they changed over time? Well, Everything depends on what you want a monument to do, because it can't
7: do anything for the people who are gone, obviously. Uh, So it's for us when we're building it now. So sometimes we're begging the gods, don't let this happen to us again. Sometimes we're thinking we need to make sure future generations remember this and never let it happen again. And sometimes it's for other reasons.
3: Yeah, and I think I'm looking at this from a very intersectional lens. And like after this country's response to statues and monuments, I wonder, do they even still have any impact?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. Because in the last 50 years, we've seen really a change in what we think a monument is for. So you don't see a bunch of, you know, dudes on horses being the heroes that everybody's supposed to emulate anymore. Because we've realized... One person can't stand for everything that we want to be. Right. Um, so now we have a lot more monuments that really are about commemorating suffering and loss. But our question is, you know, nobody really wants to spend their Saturdays hanging out thinking about a painful yeah. history. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So you kind of have to figure, you know, what should a monument be for, um, and and. We are all mourning losses for the pandemic now. So is there something that having a monument can do that will be different than our own private mourning?
2: Definitely. And there's been some ones that have been problematic, uh, like AIDS monuments. And how can we use the lessons from those experiences to approach this?
7: Yeah, there's been huge problems getting AIDS monuments put up um, in big, prominent public places. Um, I think precisely because a government is unwilling to put up a monument that is critical to governments. Uh, So there is a history of governmental failures in responding to the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, today we are seeing a lot of governmental failures in responding to COVID. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a real challenge to get a government to put up, say, a national monument to a pandemic if there's going to be in that monument criticism of the government's response.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. And I even thought about it, like even if the government was to do a COVID-19 monument, would that not read as tone deaf? Because I feel like those people who are looking at this would want those funds in their pockets, you know, a.k.a. stimulus package. (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
2: Again, we're talking to uh, Dr. Aaron Thompson, a professor at the City University of New York. There have been temporary memorials. It seems like around 20,000 American flags were placed in the National Mall in Washington, D.C. when the death toll in the U.S. passed 200,000 in September. Photos of victims were placed along Belle Isle Drive in Detroit as part of a drive-by memorial. What would a monument look like right now and where? Yeah, temporary monuments are great for
7: responding to crisis in the moment, Um, but then it's a totally different question of of having a permanent monument. And you know, I think of the 1918 flu pandemic, Um, there aren't a lot of monuments built to that. And does that mean that we forgot things about how to respond to a pandemic like that, that we could have been using today? So if we do have a COVID monument, I think we need to think about what lessons do we want that to teach future generations? Because you know pandemics are going to come back. So what have we learned that we don't want people to forget?
3: Yeah, but it does seem like history often repeats itself. So how do we really even use art or the things that we've seen in the past to help us navigate what we're dealing with currently?
7: Yeah, to be honest, a lot of American monuments are about oppressing people and telling mm. people to stay in their place. And don't you go looking for any more rights because... You know, the white people in charge are always going to be in charge <laughs> yeah, and you know, Mount Rushmore. Um, so it's, it's sometimes I get cynical and think, what good does a monument in
2: Canada do? Uh, well, how can we look at art right now during the pandemic and how that's helped shape our experience of this time? I think
7: artists have done an amazing job connecting us during the pandemic, giving us things that are just beautiful to look at or to raise our awareness or to let us protest in ways that are safe for us. Um, So yeah, I'm not saying that art has no use. I'm saying that art has amazing amounts of use, but maybe putting big blocks of marble together is not um, the one that's
2: most important right now. Definitely. Well, Dr. Erin Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Erin Thompson is a professor at the City University of New York. Now, coming up on the show, he's Catherine O'Hara's stylist. And now he's the author of the book, The Queer Advantage. Andrew Gelwix joins us right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. How have some of the biggest celebs and world leaders used their queer identity as an edge on their path to success? Mm. Well, that's the focus of Andrew Gelwix's book, The Queer Advantage, conversations with LGBTQ plus leaders on the power of identity how that's like juicy i Very love intense. it intense yes and he joins us right now welcome to the show
4: hello thank you i i think like i need that intro like everywhere i go now that was <laughs> i feel like my like i was like oh i like that like the <laughs> so, i love it well let's keep piling
3: on the compliments because not yeah. <laughs> only are you an author but you're also a stylist you style katherine O'Hara. are
4: you kidding me i do style Catherine. i am that's Maura. With her. Maura. With oh my yes. God!
3: I love. I just had to ask because I'm yes. obsessed with that show, and I was just like, She's "There's crazy. no way that I am not going to talk about this with you."
4: <laughs> the thing is, I'm such a fan of the show too, and I. So it's like h- kind of like hard for me <laughs> as well because I'm yeah. like, I love this show so much, and I just adore her so much as you know as Catherine. Um. So yes, I'm. I'm very lucky. You did very yeah, well. She <laughs> looks beautiful at the Emmys. Uh huh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Valentino. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and and you I feel like you're so young, so you've done so much. What inspired you to write this book?
4: I've always loved writing, and it's always been a passion of mine. Um, and I think like I kind of put it on the back burner once I was really trying to start styling and make that the focus of my full-time work. But I really, I just felt the urge to dive back into that and the concept of the queer advantage was so exciting to me because it really was the antithesis of every single thing I thought about queerness and myself. And being able to dive into that and to question every single thing I've thought about right. was really exciting. And I, it was, it was fun for me to be able to do that in conjunction with my fashion work as well, and kind of have them be parallel. And so it was really just that urge to explore the topic, see if there is a queer advantage. Did other people think this existed as well? Yeah, how do you define the queer advantage? One of the most exciting things about the queer advantage is that it's 100% completely unique to each person. Mm. So. In speaking with 51 of some of the most inspiring, successful leaders in the world, each of them had a unique perspective onto what their queer advantage was. Mm -hmm. Yes, there were commonalities and similar threads in between all the conversations, but really each person just dependent on their identity, their own upbringing, the field that they're in, it was so specific to them. But it's really ultimately comes down to how does being queer, the experience of being queer, really positively impact you? How is it an asset? How does it take you to the next level? And it's so exciting to be able to speak with these people who, many of them whom I grew up looking at and being inspired by myself uh, and hearing this side of their story, which I've never heard before.
2: Yeah. Again, we're talking to writer and stylist Andrew Gelwix about his book, The Queer Advantage. Let's talk about some of those names because you're like, yeah, some of the leaders. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> Troye Sivan, Margaret Cho, yes. George Takei, uh, Billy Jean King, Shangela, who's been on our show. Yeah. I mean, Adam a Rediff, lot of Rediffen. people those list have. Yeah. And, and so what was the big takeaway here? And what did you personally learn?
4: You know, the takeaway is that The Queer Advantage is so much more powerful it is so much more you know expansive than I ever could have imagined when I sat down on day one to you know begin thinking about writing this book I feel like I had a very limited scope of what the queer advantage was you know obviously because I was just using my own experiences what I had known you know, at that moment of what being queer meant. And in talking with these people, I, you know, with each person, and I hope the the readers feel the same way as they're reading it, that you're just rethinking everything. Uh, I, I, I keep comparing it to when you are like watching a movie, your favorite movie for a second time. And you're like, how, how did I miss that? Like, yeah. you just just re- like totally rediscovering new things and connecting dots that you hadn't noticed a connection before. And that's what the whole process of writing this was for me. And that was kind of the takeaway is just that this is so much bigger than just me. And this is so much bigger than I could have ever imagined.
3: But And I think you're also putting an extra emphasis on how beautiful being queer can be and what it can do for your life. Could your younger self even imagine you making a book that really is going to impact so
4: many more of our generation to come? I mean, the I, this is a book I would have loved to have read. Right. Um, what's exciting is that the queer advantage, while the book is about queer identity and queer stories, the queer advantage and the themes that can be taken away, they're not exclusive to the queer community. Mm. You know, so many people, everybody really has something that can make them different. Um, and it's really, how do you take that difference, your unique unique identity to yourself and use that as your asset, as your strength. If you have had struggles, how do you turn those into your strengths?
2: Well, we've got to ask you to share one of your favorite stories from the book. We'll be back with more of Andrew Gellwick's author of The Queer Advantage next.
0: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q.
2: We are back with Andrew Gelwicks, author of The Queer Advantage, Conversations with LGBTQ Plus Leaders on the Power of Identity. So you've got to tell us a story that stands out from the book. Oh,
4: my goodness. Um, I, I do think back often to interviewing Barney Frank. I mean, I I think I write this in my kind of introduction to his section. I was, I mean, I was literally like lying in bed watching Grey's Anatomy reruns and I get a phone call from a DC number, which usually I don't even answer, you know, calls that you don't know the number. Right. Um, but I thank- thankfully picked it up and it was literally Barney Frank. And he was like, hi, this is it Barney Frank. I'll speak with you. Like, meet me tomorrow at this hotel.
3: Okay. What, in the house of cards?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been scared. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I knew who Barney Frank, obviously who Barney Frank was. I knew his reputation and everything he's done. And I was like, oh my God. Like, first of all, huge. I ha- only have like a few hours to prepare for this. <laughs> and then it was like going to this hotel, meeting with Barney Frank, like in the lobby. We were in this like computer bay where people would like use their, for uh, quiet office space. And, you know, his husband was there and it was just like this, Kind of surreal, like what is going on? What did I get myself into? Moment, but you know he couldn't have been lovelier and could not have been kinder Mm. and more sincere as well. That that was a very special moment.
2: Again, we're talking to writer and stylist Andrew Gelwicks about his book, The Queer Advantage. I love some of the other themes that you talk about um, in the book, including using your sensitivity and attunement to read the room, deciding when to fit in and when to stand out and finding a queer tribe. Can you go through some of these um, themes and why they're important to include in the book?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, that to me, when I think about that, it comes down to really introspection. um, And I think as queer people um, and, you know, pe- people of color, women, they, they they have experiences with this too, that from such a young age, we're so much more attuned to how we are being perceived. You know, are we cutting somebody off? Are we talking too loud? What is our word choice? Um, and for from my experience as a queer person, that developed at a very young age, um, you know, how I was being perceived and how I was expressing myself. Yeah. So now as an adult um, and, you know, in a, the professional world or even in a social world, it's so much easier for me to walk into any room, whether it's a social dinner party with strangers or a boardroom with people I don't know, but need to impress, you know, I can gauge the room based on, 26 years of doing that, starting at recess, and realizing when to express this side of myself, when to hold back, how to show this side of myself. And I found that to be super powerful and really exciting, because it, you know, makes me really grateful for this Introspection and yeah. extrospection. I mean, as well. queer
3: people, it kind of was an um, inherent thing. It was kind of like a superhero power, if you think about mm-hmm. it, because you have to, if you're going to go into rooms and survive as a queer person um, in any Absolutely. moment in your life. And so, yeah, I, I love how you, you've learned to love that and
4: use it as one of your gifts. It's great. You know, it, again, you know, it, sometimes it is just a matter of survival. You know, I need to go into this room, I need to be safe. I need to know how to position myself so I can, you know, do whatever I need to do and be safe. Um, But then on the other side, it's all right. How am I going to use this to really propel myself, Um, which I think is exciting?
2: Well, this is amazing. We appreciate you for joining us today and for sharing yourself.
4: Thank you. I'm so excited.
2: That was writer and stylist Andrew Gelwix. Check out his book, The Queer Advantage, Conversations with LGBTQ Plus Leaders on the Power of Identity, out right now. Coming up, so President Trump is going to defund the military if Congress doesn't punish Twitter. For real, the clip that says it all next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go
0: there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q.
2: Coming up on the show, Peter Kafka from Vox.com joins us to discuss the streaming wars and the future of movie releases.
3: Yeah, because guess what? Roku and HBO Max can't stop fighting like toddlers. And it's so annoying to me. I had to get a whole other TV because of how bad I wanted it.
2: Well, that sucks. I mean, they have the money to figure it out. Why is it on you?
3: I mean, seriously, are anyone else purchasing these things because of that reason?
2: Right. We just keep spending more on apps. Like how many more uh, things can you sign up for at this point?
3: It's the worst.
2: (laughs) All right, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Press Secretary Keely McEnany was asked if the president is really going to defund the military if Congress doesn't punish Twitter.
8: Here's what she had to say. Yes, uh, the president is serious about it. Um, And I noted, um, you know, when you have other world leaders that are making calls for genocide and Twitter not finding that worthy of flagging or blocking. Uh, Beyond that, um, you look at China, who's putting out disinformation. China uh, tweeted out, uh, I believe it was six days ago, I think it was November 25th, that COVID-19 did not originate in Wuhan, something that was not deemed worthy of flagging by Twitter. Uh, There are real grave concerns here, and the president stands by that. Um, And it also is worth noting that the president will always defend our military, ensure that we get adequate defense funding as he's gotten $2.9 trillion so far. But he is going to put the pressure on Congress to step up on this.
2: And I mean, it doesn't end there. There were so many clips from today's press conference. I didn't even know where to start here. But she also went on to call the COVID-19
8: vaccine the Trump vaccine. Here we go. We will have 40 million doses by the end of the year, which is a tremendous achievement, not just to have gotten a vaccine in this time, but to have produced 40 million in advance. It's uh, having a businessman as president, the Trump vaccine. No, Ryan, should we
2: just take a shot from now on every time McEnany says Trump vaccine? Because I unfortunately see it in our future.
3: Um, I'm actually already drinking because I'm already dealing with just the traumas of this administration. So...
2: Okay, well, maybe this will help with that. Another shot added to what you're already going through. Oh, that was sad. I'm sorry. No, don't drink. <laughs> I don't even know how to react to what? that. It just went downhill. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Now, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is facing criticism over suggesting a bipartisan proposal on further stimulus is a waste of time after, of course, detailing a plan of his own. He wants to be the savior here, I guess, and saying that President Trump will back it. Mm. It has been more than eight months, by the way, since the last major COVID-19 relief package, the CARES Act, was signed by the president. A prolonged stalemate in attempting to secure a follow-up continues, and a group including Republican and Democrat lawmakers unveiled a $908 billion compromise proposal on Tuesday. And that's what he was referencing here. And that's what's trending this hour. What's
3: happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so I got some cheer for you after that depressing headlines, because let me tell you about how Cher is singing to the world's loneliest elephant. Oh, my God. Okay, so she traveled to the nation of Pakistan to serenade Kavan. He is a 35-year-old elephant dubbed the world's loneliest elephant. Oh, my God. He grew up in isolation. And due to the political and financial unrest in Pakistan over the past four decades, Kavan lived in a less than ideal conditions, often living in tight, confined um, spaces in less than healthy conditions. And I guess she visited a- um, I mean, Ryan,
2: you said this was uplifting. This is really depressing. Okay,
3: but here's where the uplifting part comes because here she is giving Kavan the concert of his life.
8: Our wishes will come smiling through No matter how
6: your heart is grieving you keep on
3: believing The dream that you wish Will come true. So, yeah, I mean, how is that not sweet? She's singing. She she made the world's loneliest elephant feel seen. And um, also, Kavan is leaving Pakistan, by the way. So I, I believe he's going somewhere better.
2: Well, thank God. I mean, can we not just give him a day of being happy? <laughs> he deserves more.
3: Yeah, true, true. But I mean, what a surprise. I mean, if Kavan is a, a queer he person definitely... inside, then... <laughs> this is an idea
2: he's definitely a fan of Cher. i mean he's probably heard the hits he's probably watched her youtube videos
3: you know her previous concerts oh my goodness for sure and now moving on to the t report uh oreos just announced uh that it's partnering with lady gaga on a specially themed package of the Oreos based on the pop star's latest album, Chromatica. The cookies are pink-colored golden Oreo cookies with green-colored cream. I mean, that honestly sounds awful, but we'll see. Um, it's going to feature designs inspired by the album on the cookie part. The new Oreos will be available in six cookie packs starting in January while full packs of the Chromatica cookies will arrive next year. And guess what? She's doing something special for the fans. Fans who want the cookies early early can sign up for the Lady Gaga X Oreo Stand Club to get notified when the full packs release. Oreo says the first 1,000 subscribers will get a free pack of cookies, and Oreo and Lady Gaga are also launching a contest where winners can receive free merchandise and experiences from the pop singer. I mean, are you kidding me? It's like Santa. Right? I mean, we deserve cookies this year. Oh my goodness, that is your tea report. And uh that's all I got for you. Go make sure to keep us following at LGT Show and of course check out our website at q.com
2: Okay, now coming up, media tech journalist Peter Kafka from Vox.com joins us to talk about why streaming devices and streaming networks are fighting over your eyeballs. That's next.
0: Let's go there with Shira
2: and Ryan, the new Channel Q. The streaming wars were getting intense before the pandemic, but now with theaters being impacted too, it's getting next level. I'm so excited because we have an expert on this, Peter Kafka, joining us right now, Vox.com senior correspondent. Thanks for being here.
1: Happy to be here.
2: So you mentioned Wonder Woman 1984 coming to theaters on HBO Max Christmas Day, but how if you're on Roku, you might not have access. What does this say about the problems for these streaming services? I
1: don't know if it's a problem for the streaming services, the streaming services are sort of the networks and the the services like Roku and Amazon are kind of like the old cable TV distribution. Mm. If you ever got your TV from Spectrum or Charter or Time Warner Cable. And those two sides used to have fights all the time. And now there's a digital version of that fight, but people aren't used to thinking about that. And what this really means is, You may want to watch uh, Wonder Woman 1984 Christmas Day uh, because you heard it's on HBO Max and you will turn on your Roku TV and you'll try to get HBO Max and you won't be able to or at least not easily. You may have to do a workaround. Um, So there's a a brave new world of streaming and everyone's sort of fighting out sort of what those terms are going to be.
3: Well, what makes Like, kind of what goes into these deals, right? Because what makes both parties happy? Because HBO Max didn't have something with, uh, you know, Amazon Fire TV until mid-November. So what kind of goes into these moments?
1: So, look, bottom line, it's always money. But the more nuanced version of it is everyone wants direct access to you, the consumer, and that's a change. In the old days, HBO didn't go directly to you. They sold wholesale. They sold their programming to Comcast or Time Warner or whoever. And and those cable companies turned around and sold it to you. And so HBO Max never had a direct connection to you. Now they all want a direct connection to you the same way Netflix does. They want that data. They want to keep as much money as they can that, that, that you pay them. But it's really about the data and that connection to you and understanding what you're watching. And if there's advertising involved, they want control of that advertising so they want to own, it's who gets, who owns the customer.
2: Mm. But what are some creative solutions around this? Because in the end, they all want to be in each other's sandboxes, but there's going to be ownership somewhere, right? So what's the solution?
1: Yeah, look, a lot of the stuff is getting worked out. Um, and But you'll see these, these will be like one or two year deals. So this will keep coming up. And a lot of times there are relatively easy ways to get around this. Um, you know, you can cast from your phone to your TV. If, if you're listening to this and it's a podcast, you probably can figure out how to do do some of this. In my case, I've got a Roku TV, um, so I can't watch HBO Max on that, but I can plug in my old Apple TV box, which does get HBO Max, and it's a couple extra steps. And it's yeah, in that's ass, intense. But it's not intense, right? If you're listening to this conversation, you could handle it. You can get around it and wait for them to figure it out.
2: I don't know if my mom can handle that. I'm
3: saying your mom,
1: your mom probably won't. And that's and that's the thing. They're all betting that one side is going to blink because they're missing out on your mom.
3: Well, how should the viewers and ones paying these subscription prices be kind of looking at these situations? You know, should it
1: impact how we continue to finance these companies? Like if I'm paying for HBO Max and I can't get it on my Roku TV? I might, I might think about that. And then again, I probably am not going to know about that until I go to go to sign up for HBO Max, and then I'm going to be frustrated. Uh, this stuff—it's not sustainable to have these fights forever. Mm-hmm. That said, I mean HBO Max launched last spring. They're going to looks like at this point they're going to make it through Christmas without being on Roku. So they they're dug in for a little bit.
2: Yeah. Again, Peter Kafka is with us, Vox.com senior correspondent. When I look at some of these companies like Apple TV and Amazon, they're promoting these other companies when they're essentially competing with them. How are they going to figure this out in the future?
1: (laughs) Well, it it is symbiotic, right? They do want each other. Uh, Your Roku TV is much more valuable. Ah, uh, to you if you can get HBO Max on it. So Roku does want HBO Max on there. They just want it out in their terms. HBO Max wants to be on Roku TV. They're the biggest single streaming distribution network in the in the country. So they both want to be there. They just need to figure it out. Uh, and there's there's smaller versions of this, like Apple TV has an app that doesn't have netflix on it but you can still watch netflix through the apple tv box. that's so
3: weird yeah so you
1: have to do like the downside is you have to do more clicking around you have to do some googling to figure out where your thing is and where you can watch it on the other hand it's way better than it used to be because it used to be you had no choice at all you signed up for cable from time warner cable and your choice was do i want a big bundle or a big bundle plus HBO. And that was it. Yeah, That's true. And you and you didn't have a choice. And, and, you know, you can you Hamilton is on Disney Plus. You want to watch it. You sign up for Disney Plus, you unsubscribe. It's if you want to do the work, it's pretty easy.
2: As we wrap things up, what will be the future of movie releases like Wonder Woman coming up? What's worked this year and what hasn't?
1: Well, nothing's worked this year because of the pandemic. The big question is, what's going to happen in a year or so when things go back to normal and you could put a movie in a theater or you could put it at home? I think what most people think is they're, you know, the big blockbusters, the Marvel movies, the Wonder Womans, those are still going to go to the theaters because they can bring in a lot of people. But a lot of the smaller movies, pretty much everything else, might come directly to you at home, either bundled in with your HBO Max package or you'll pay extra for it, which
3: I do like. I liked most of my movies going on Netflix and watching it from the comfort of my couch. It was great,
1: yeah. Um, and this year you had to do it. And in yeah. a couple of years, you might have that choice.
2: Love it. Well, Peter Kafka, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. Peter is from Vox.com, senior correspondent. Love to have him on. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the
0: new Channel Q.
2: We are wrapping up the show, as we always do, with our Yes Queen of the day. Yes, Queen. So the first LGBTQ plus owned banking platform has launched in the US. This is so cool, so needed. It strives to make finances and savings more accessible to the LGBTQ plus community. And its aim is to help individuals save for important events such as gender transition surgery, surrogacy, or other forms of healthcare.
3: This is incredible. Are you kidding me?
2: Yeah, it really is. And here's the co-founder and CEO, Rob Curtis, talking about the need for a platform like this.
1: The areas that banks are failing us is that if you look at all of the friction that's in the banking system, our lower mortgage approval rates... Um, The difficulty that we face when we try and talk to our banks with openness about our lifestyles, we're about 50% more likely to have to work in retirement. That's absolutely astounding. And the average person that does have to work uh, in retirement as an LGBT person will be working for seven years. So, The banking system is preparing for us, but they're preparing in the wrong ways. We're getting marketing campaigns during Pride season. We're getting rainbows on cards. But what we're not getting is supportive advice that helps us to avoid these pain points and to prepare for our financial futures.
2: What a great idea. It just took one person, right? I mean, I'm sure people have been thinking about this, but it takes one entrepreneur to make it happen, and they're doing it. really remarkable.
3: Yeah, because a bank like this um, could help so many people. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're thinking about, especially for folks in this community who are trying to just make it and they're trying to do all of these things that you've list, uh, like as these important events in their lives, it's good to know that you can go somewhere where people see you, they hear you and understand exactly, if not can relate exactly totally. to what you're going through and just be like, yes, let's help you get somewhere. Let's figure out a plan. And I I think that is what's necessary and and so impactful.
2: Yeah, and for more info, to check this out, just go to joindaylight.com. They're doing great stuff. And that's our yes queen of the day.
3: Yes,
2: queen. And remember, if you have anyone to nominate for a Yaz Queen of the Day, we'd love to hear from you. Slide into our DMs on social media at LGT Show. Now, coming up on tomorrow's show, we've got the latest from the CDC on who will get the vaccine first. And one state might get it by December 15th. Plus, how the Georgia state runoffs are turning to TikTok to bring out new voters. Uh, that and more on tomorrow's show. Let's go there live on Channel Q, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. And remember, there's Dr. Chris and Loveline right after our show, Monday through Thursday. So stay tuned for him right after this. Now we are sending you love and lights. And honey, remember to slay. And check out our podcast on the Renew.com app too. Mm-hmm. Have a great night. Bye. Bye, y'all. Let's Go There with Shira Lazar
0: and
3: Ryan Mitchell on Channel Q. On the next show, Survival of the Fittest. The CDC announced who will get the vaccine first. So are you and your state on the top of the list? Plus, the Georgia state runoffs are turning to TikTok to bring out new voters.
0: Listen live weekdays, 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Channel Q. Or on your own time with the Let's Go There podcast on the Radio.com app.